Welcome to the 55th episode of Total Pop Mode, your weekly comedy gaming podcast. My name is Will, and I also go by Hoodafunk, and I'm joined here by my good friend, co-host, and fellow gaming enthusiast, James, aka Mr. Bames. What's going on, you totally tremendous tapirs? Coming up this episode, we've got our weekly regular games catch-up, followed by the weekly gaming news, where we talk the latest leaks in gaming and tantalising tales of new and upcoming releases. But before all of that, let's crack out the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pop Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can find us on X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. So James, it's time for the weekly catch up, and I'll pass the ball to you on this one. What have you been up to this week? So the the true answer is for the most part nothing because uh, right. I just I've been very tired this week. Um, okay, okay, so it's been a sleepy boy week. It has been a bit, but there's one major thing that I can talk about because, as you know, and I'm sure as a few of our listeners know as well, Starfield releases on the sixth of September. But if you're a little kino and you buy the premium edition, then you get to play that bad boy as of today. 1am British time, 1st of September. So I have been playing some Starfield. Nice one, man. Yeah. What's your first impressions? So first impressions are, I mean, the first impression was it looks beautiful. Stunning right. game, stunning game. And the next thing that was straight away, I thought was, wow, this is Skyrim. Because the, right. the first thing you do, right? You know Skyrim, you wake up on your cart and then Rayloff says, Hey, you, finally awake. And in this one, you're sort of going down a lift, heading into a mine. The screen fades from black into the scene and you're there with a couple of people. You're not asleep or anything, but it's a sort of cart ride-esque vibe that i was getting from it okay okay and then the initial tutorial bit is very on rails you don't really do a great deal it's very much just setting the scene get attacked by a dragon standard standard yeah 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 that sort of bullshit no you don't even get attacked by a dragon actually you just find a special piece of ore or a special artifact and then you have a little trip and then you wake up later in a hospital bed similar to fallout 3 another bethesda game uh matey puts a screen in front of your face and you get to design your character right oh okay okay yeah phantom pain vibes there anybody Bethesda fans out there are just instantly like, yeah, you play this game and you're like, yeah, this is Bethesda. <laughs> yeah, I know what's wicked, up. Yeah. Good stuff. I've heard that the character creator is quite in-depth and there's a hell of a lot of choices in terms of how you can start your class. Yes, but there's a couple of annoyances with it. Very, very personal to me, I do admit, because for the most part, the character creator is excellent. Many people in the past have sort of had a go at Bethesda for their character models and their facial animations and stuff like that. I really think they've made a vast improvement in this game. That was one thing I've noticed from a lot of the test footage is that the facial animations have been massively tuned up. Yeah, and the mocap voice acting style, like all the words look like they match pretty much perfectly it's very very good indeed you said that the graphics were good earlier as well one thing that i noticed was that the lighting has been really tuned nicely uh, and i think that that makes a world of difference in how the game presents itself as well yeah no it's, it's stunning yeah really is um, and you get all sorts of different ranges as well because you start off underground in a mine then you're out on a big bright planet later and yeah all sorts of stuff but my main issue with the character creator is, and again i say it's very personal to me they don't have a shaved head hairstyle <laughs> right, okay, which is like so you can't create that's like yourself. the 
Well, I know I still made myself, but like, there's just you've got the texture pack because you've got the shaved sides with the big old freaking mohawky thing. Why not just put it in? Like you have bald, and then you go to like a four. Come on, guys. Honestly, it's 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 a weird gripe, but also at the same time, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of bald guys out there. A lot of people are going to be bummed to have no hair dryers. I feel like that's going to be something that will be patched in due to popular demand. Well, and the other thing is, it's interesting. It's the exact opposite of Skyrim. They had like a zero or a one all over, but they didn't have bald. Right, okay, okay. So it's just a very weird one. Like, And, and obviously, I'm being a little bit facetious here. It's not a problem at all. It's, it really hasn't impacted my enjoyment, but something there. The other thing is they didn't have dark green eyes. They only have light green eyes, so I couldn't do my eyes properly. But that's just the me thing. For the most part, though, the character creator is excellent. Um, you get plenty of options, lots of sliders, so you'll have a great time. Can you create an absolute monstrosity? Uh, I haven't tried, to be perfectly honest with you. I've just made me like three or four times, so I'm sure you can. I've got work to do tonight, then. Yeah, exactly. Have, have a go. See what you can do. I'm creating a monster! But then going on to what you say about uh, the differences in your sort of setup with your class, if you like. It's not really accurate to say it's a class, because basically all it is is it gives you a little bit of a background similar to a mass effect how like you know ruthless war hero whatever it's that sort of thing and you it affects your three starting skills right but then you get a skill point every level and then you can unlock anything without any attribute wall to stop you from unlocking stuff cool and I've heard that it follows a bit of a Skyrim system in the sense that you need to practice the thing that you're looking to improve as opposed to the Fallout system. Uh, I, not really. It's somewhere in between that. So, for example, if I, I picked um, Industrialist as my starting archetype because it has persuasion, security, and then it had like research tech or something, which I haven't used yet. And if I right. want to level up my security skill, which is lockpicking, I have my initial point in it. Before I can rank up to rank two, I have to pick five locks. Okay, okay. And then to rank from two to three, it's 15 locks. And then there's only four ranks per skill. So it's not quite the same as Skyrim in the sense that with Skyrim, if you're lock picking, you can go to a novice, advanced, master lock, whatever it is, at any point in the game and have a go at it. And then your lock picking skill will just go up. And then you can use your perk points that you get throughout the game in that tree, if you like. Yeah, in this, yeah. you can only unlock novice locks with level one. You get expert locks at level two and you get master locks at level three. Right. But in between that, you can't actually unlock them. You can't even have a go. So it's more like Fallout in that respect. I guess in a sense, it's more restrictive in terms of you do need to focus your efforts. But then, it, as you say, it's halfway between that and Skyrim because it still does force you to actually practice the thing you want to get better at in order to progress further and unlock the later locks as well it's a bit of a hybrid system there sounds quite interesting yeah but and obviously the lock picking one's quite basic there's one that's called like weight training and it affects your carry capacity you have to right. be at least 75 percent over encumbered and sprint for a thousand meters to get from level one to level two i don't know what the rest are because i haven't done them okay but so different things will have different challenges and obviously you've got five trees God knows if I can remember what they all are. Personality, combat, tech, science, and something else. And they've right. all got four different tiers with about three to five skills on each one. So there's a lot of things you can do. I don't know what the level cap is or anything like that. But yeah, and you get out of the tutorial and uh well that sort of first initial tutorial but anyway and then you're not quite unleashed on the world straight away as you would be in skyrim because obviously you have to learn about flying your ship 
And to do that, you have to get your shit. Right, yeah, there's some new stuff to learn. But for any fans out there of Bethesda RPGs, you will feel right at home because it's got that familiar feel to it, which, you know, I think Skyrim's the greatest game ever made. So a massive thumbs up from me. Awesome, man. It sounds like it's really impressive. It sounds like it's really impressed you, at least. And I'm really looking forward to getting my teeth into it at some point, hopefully later tonight, once it finally finishes installing. But yeah, uh, the space combat's really cool. Takes a bit of getting used to because it's not something that I've ever really... I've done it in some games before, uh, Star Trek Online shout outs, but it is cool. And doing it on keyboard and mouse makes it a lot easier because you've got the speed of the mouse and you can do those sharper turns in it. Probably map a few more controls that are useful to guide it as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. All that good stuff. Um, and I'm looking forward a lot to seeing how that develops because I've played quite a few hours. I was up at 1am waiting for it to unlock itself so I could play it straight away. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, well, you say nice. I got to, it didn't actually start doing anything until 20 past one so i was a bit like oh come on mate googling like is it is it (laughs) Um, i had a similar experience with armored core last week actually as well so it's just that delay in it but then it was all there and good but i really can't wait to play with the ship fighting mechanic a lot more i mean i really haven't left the first town you get to after doing the tutorial stuff because i've started again a couple of times because i'm me and i have to do that (laughs) even though i later found out that you can actually just redesign your character whenever you want for 500 credits all right okay that's quite a nice little feature they're giving you like a respec thing that's a new thing for these type of games well skyrim had it as dlc but you have to pay a lot of gold to it and this one 500 credits is nothing fine yeah yeah and do you know what the best piece of news about starfield that i can possibly say as well what's that and i'm probably gonna f***ing jinx it for myself but touch wood crossing everything all the good luck no bugs all of this just works it, no is, bugs. it, it works well okay i say no bugs hold up wait a minute Something ain't right. There's one little bug with the <laughs> uh, with the eyelid physics. So I like to zoom right. out and look at my character, right? And occasionally, if you turn around, the eyelids don't quite keep up, and you get the sort of um. The only way I can describe it is cum face. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. I think I know what you mean. Where yeah, one yeah. eyelid is like shaking about and looking gammy, and the other one's like a wide open eye. I think I've seen that a little bit in Call of Duty. Yeah. As uh, as well. So okay. Yeah. I look forward to checking that. Out. So if you want to call that a bug, then fine. I accept that. Oh, it's definitely a bug. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but it's not game breaking like a Bethesda day one. Yeah, though, yeah. Right? And the only other thing I've seen, and it's very specific to one area of the game, it could happen in others because, like I said, I barely touched this game so far. Is that when you're clearing out? the first sort of dungeon if you like in the latter part of the tutorial you kill a bunch of pirates space pirates obviously not our pirates and you loot their bodies their empty corpses stay in there good times you go to the roof do what you got to do come back down through the building if you loot their bodies again they have stuff again oh right okay okay yeah yeah. but i don't know if it's only there because outside on the planet where you've killed other people it doesn't happen and with some other corpses, it doesn't happen. It's only specifically the pirates you kill in that level. Right. There may be other sort of set PC bits yeah. or more kind of guided bits where it happens down the line as well. But exactly. again, that sounds like a very minor sort of yeah. a, a thing that they could probably quite easily patch out. Oh, incredibly easily. Yeah. I mean, this is like nothing game breaking. I've had no like quality issue. There's been no lag. And I've got everything on Ultra. Runs like a dream, mate. 
that's some of the feedback I've been hearing is that the game, uh, as well as running particularly well on all types of different hardware, it also has relatively very few bugs compared to some of the previous large RPG releases by Bethesda. I have seen a very small handful of visual glitches, but most of the reviews have been more like, yeah, I found this thing, but at the same time, this happened so infrequently, it was this one time, that again, I think when you kind of take it in the scope of other Bethesda titles, this actually shows a real step forward in terms of the sheen and polish on a game that they're releasing on day one which can only be a good thing and that's why i opened by saying it's got no bugs and then had to correct myself it's like well it does (laughs) but it's not bethesda bugs not bethesda level of bugs hey doesn't that give you a bit of confidence for the upcoming elder scrolls game yes but it's like five years so i'm not gonna get yeah, yeah. but for me this is a bit of like uh getting back on track in terms of level of prestige exactly and the other thing is uh as an elder scrolls fan as an elder scrolls f- boy i'm looking at this and thinking right what are they doing here that they're going to take into elder scrolls and obviously i haven't touched the faction stuff yet that's all going to be completely new to me and there's all sorts of politics going on in this world i think so mm, looking forward mm. to that but from what i've seen so far It is just Skyrim on steroids in the way that it works. And that, to me, is just give it to me. That's exactly what I wanted. It keeps me going and I love it. And I think if you give it a shot, you might love it too. Coming off the back of playing Mass Effect for Completionist Corner these last few weeks, must feel really good jumping into this and seeing that kind of realised in a modern day game. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of Mass Effect vibes to it. Sadly, no other alien races, which is a bit disappointing. I was about to say, yeah, the only thing is at the moment I haven't found any other alien races that are interactable. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Are they all just sort of long dead or something? Well, no, there's only enemies, right? I don't know if there's alien civilizations. There may well be. Thousands of planets to explore, so who knows? And there's plenty of languages. I mean, one thing I will say, the big town that I've been in so far feels like a bustling city. There's a lot of people in there. But Mm, But if you're going into it expecting every single character to be named and have their own routine, sorry to disappoint you guys. Oh, I think that would be very ambitious. Are they all just kind of like settler or whatever? Citizen. Citizen, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So there are obviously named characters. And my understanding is is that you can hire most any named character to your crew if you want not not right, not, cool. not every single one but certainly loads of them um, and obviously the bigger your ship is the more crew you can have and then you can you know the outpost stuff and making settlements and new planets that's all going to be a whole thing with the crew members. A lot of these crew members are meant to have quite individual personalities, much like we've seen in previous games like Fallout. But it sounds a lot more further developed in this. Quite impressive in terms of the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, this game has like a thousand planets in it, and apparently these allies are going to have a lot to say about the different places that you go. So I think we know where those hundreds of thousands of dialogue recorded hours are going that we mentioned on an earlier show. As I say, there's loads of different languages as well, like. You got French in there that I've seen so far, Japanese, Spanish, sort of like made up shit, stuff just splashed together. <laughs> right, okay. So there's all sorts <laughs> of stuff going on. And the other thing that's quite nice as well um, is there's a lot more body shapes in this game. So you can be like hench, skinny, and large. Nice, you can do what you want. Nice. I'm gonna be a big chonker. Yeah, you. I mean, you can. I think that's my uh, that's my initial character. <laughs> but yeah, no, the man. There's so much to explore in it. As I say, I've put some hours in, but I've not even scratched the surface. That's gonna be my weekend. I think getting lost in this world. Nothing but Starfield. So at this point, I'll pass it over to you. What have you been playing this week, man? So this week, I want to start off by talking a little bit about Vampire Survivors, and it has been a while since uh, I last mentioned that on the show. It's something that I probably have 
have talked a little bit to you about Offbod, but the reason why I'm bringing it up particularly this week is that I have finally completed Vampire Survivors, minus all of the downloadable content that I still need to purchase sort of thing as a caveat there but i've completed the base game of vampire survivors which i'm very pleased to say has been a massively enjoyable experience i think i started this kind of late last year actually in fact because it was kind of fresh on my mind when i was playing it last year i ended up buying it for you in fact as a christmas gift because i was so hyped on playing it at that time so yeah almost a year later i finally completed the collection 1.0 unlocked all the god knows how many characters that there are to unlock and i'm ready for that dlc nice which you already own on PC. I do, exactly that. And what I think I'm going to do there is, now that I've completed it, I'm not going to buy the DLC on my mobile as well. I'm going to kind of just get to that same level on the PC and play for all of that content on PC. Very nice too. And I can definitely see myself enjoying the struggle of starting off from square one again and pushing my way through to unlock all the characters. Yeah, and are you going to take the PC into the toilet or are you going to take the toilet into your office? <laughs> How's that going to work? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. It may take me a little bit longer to complete this, yeah. uh, given the fact that i can't do it on quite so many toilet breaks and things like that <laughs> uh so yeah at this point I, I think that it probably will take me a while until i can access the dlc but i'm very much looking forward to getting hold of that when i do and there has actually been a subsequent dlc since then as well uh which i think is going for under a couple of quid oh hella cheap all of them yeah yeah this is probably one of the best cost versus content deals out there i think in terms of the overall cost of all of yeah, it i'd agree with that still under a tenner all in isn't it i think it may even be under a fiver all in to be honest with you i think the base oh, game is something like three to four pounds maybe i might be underestimating that a little bit but, but i remember it being priced particularly cheap for a game like that but aside from vampire survivors this week i also delved a little bit back into pokemon arceus oh nice still enjoying it yeah i'm having a good time in it so far uh, i've actually progressed the storyline quite a bit i'm kind of forcing that forward and not taking too much time to stop and smell the roses stop and smell the resilias but i did eventually unlock the weird ear i think that's how it's pronounced which is a kind of deer looking pokemon with antlers that you can actually ride in the game and you can use it to move around the map a lot faster for those that like pokemon and know it it's a stantler that's white right okay it's it was is a weird ear not in other previous titles is that new to Arceus not that I'm aware of it it's a Hiswayan form right or an okay. evolution because like there's a rock scyther there's a rock growlith yeah you know so it's one of them sort of things I think nice nice well uh yeah no he's being a trusty companion a very good steed and uh, he's allowing me yeah. to traverse a lot more easy and I actually eventually ended up getting into the first boss battle of the game or the, the first real boss battle of the game I thought I had encountered that initially when you just get these sort of enraged Pokemon that you need to to calm and capture this one was a lot different because my player character was also under attack during this battle and i was yeah. fighting a giant enraged cleaver which is a sort of praying mantis looking pokemon or as james mentioned earlier a rock scyther and uh this guy is pretty violent he does a big charging attack towards you as well as doing various swings with its front claws but luckily you've got a dark souls roll so you're all good yeah exactly that and as long as you time those perfectly you can with agility miss a lot of his attacks in the game your primary cause of attacking this enemy is throwing bombs at him that are made of his favourite concoctions of food, and eventually this calms him enough that you're able to summon your own Pokemon, which you can use to attack it, reducing its health bar, and then after a while you actually manage to daze it, which then enables you to chuck a load more balls in its direction and calm it further. Yeah, just f***ing pile food on top of it. Yeah, exactly that. Once you've managed to drain the Pokemon's health all the way down to zero, you finally soothe the boss, and with the Rage Quest, 
world, they then typically depart on their merry way. Yeah, maybe giving you a little nod and smile as they go. Yeah, yeah, pretty much that. All good. So, uh, you know, it wasn't a particularly difficult fight. I wasn't expecting a particularly no. difficult fight, obviously. But it was a fun little thing to do, and it definitely broke up the gameplay mechanics that I'd experienced so far in the game and introduced something new, which I was quite excited to check out. And finally, my dodging ability actually came into use. I've been neglecting that quite a bit so far because a lot of the other yeah. world Pokemon in the game, you can just sort of run away from them for the most part. Especially when you get your deer mate as well. Exactly that. Now I've got weird deer. It's just not even an obstacle. So with my first boss of the game defeated and my new trusty steed acquired, I put down Pokemon for this week and picked up Armored Core 6 again. And Jay James, I'm pleased to tell you that I've actually made a decent amount of headway through the campaign now. I've now unlocked various modes and new ways to augment and decorate my mech. Nice, so we know what I'm going to ask, first things first. Yeah, exactly. Picking up from our discussion last week, Arena Mode is absolutely back in the game. Yes, that's what we like to hear. And it's really, really good as well. This is actually one of the methods in the game that you use to unlock OS chips, which you use to yeah. augment your mech, increasing their health, increasing certain types of damage you can do, as well as unlocking new abilities. And this mode seems to give you a massive variety of mechs to fight against. And they go in yeah. tiers all the way from F to A, I I assume i haven't actually got any further than that oh this sounds exactly like exactly. it was back in yeah, the day yeah. and yes. as you progress more of your way through the campaign you unlock certain tiers so typically you can probably do about four to five battles in a row before then you're stopped and you need to progress the campaign a little bit more but it seems to be coming thick and yeah, fast you become like top of f tier or whatever uh you start at f tier and you work your way towards what i assume is the maximum a tier so I've been progressing through the campaign and I've encountered some quite difficult bosses so far. Ones, in fact, that have actually made me scrap my initial mech designs and completely change up my loadout as well as the way that I'm built. That has a huge impact on the way that you perform in the fight, both in terms of speed, overall firepower, as well as resistances. And certain bosses in the game were almost, for me, unbeatable in terms of the amount of time that I would have to put into them. At this point in the game, I understand that there is several new game pluses on top of the campaign. Pain. Uh, and the game is roughly five chapters long. I'm somewhere around just about to complete chapter three. So in terms of the timeline of the game, I'm making good progress. I also hear that in these subsequent new game plus modes, you also unlock additional armor pieces. Yeah. So I'm very keen to progress through as fast as I can, really, to unlock those armor pieces. And then if I do feel the need to do these boss fights the honorable way and switch out to some of my old initial setups, then I will absolutely do that. But for the time being, it's all about the dual Gatling guns and the dual grenade launchers, baby. That is honestly the game winner. <laughs> so you say the honorable way, does that mean you've cheesed it? <laughs> honestly, it's more like the Gatling guns and the grenade launchers are so effective that it gives you that impression right, yeah. a little bit. Maybe that's because I was fighting against a certain boss in the game that provides an absolute bullet hell for you to dodge. He kind of sends out like a spherical right. rack of missile launchers at you every so often, which completely fills the sky with missiles headed towards you, as well as other various attacks that he can do. And he's very good at evading you and keeping a distance as well. But when I finally succumbed and equipped my double Gatling guns and double grenade launchers, there was just such a massive drop in difficulty all of a sudden <laughs> because I was able to do some real stagger damage. As I kind of touched on last week, uh, there is kind of like a poise break system in the game whereby if you do break their poise, any subsequent damage for a short window is doubled. That becomes a much more important feature the more you progress into the game because the bosses have such chunky health bars. And really, 
unless you're doing that, then much like Sekiro, these boss fights are going to take like upwards of 30 minutes to an hour <laughs> oh, wow. if you're not exploiting the posture break. Do you know what I mean? Because you just won't be able to do enough raw damage without doing those sorts of things. It's very much a play the poise break bar type of game. Sounds like we're long as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it's doable. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, you can chip damage it. Yeah, maybe 45 minutes is a slight exaggeration, but it is going to really take you all day to take one of these things out. And honestly, I, I don't think it's feasible given the fact that although you are able to dodge attacks there is a certain element in this game of building your mech to be able to sustain certain amounts of damage anyway you don't want your poise bar to be breaking obviously but given the amount of incoming fire it's almost impossible for you to avoid every bullet including some of the more rapid fire light arm stuff as well yeah makes sense so i've got mixed feelings about this game in terms of its difficulty on one hand depending on how you play this game can be incredibly difficult in terms of the boss fights not specifically in terms of the campaign uh you kind of work your way through a lot of the missions pretty easily it really is the boss fights that stand out i would say in comparison to other FromSoft games campaign is much easier boss fights potentially much harder depending on your playthrough and play style i was going to say yeah it's, it's kind of sounds similar to me and elden ring really with a long sword some of the bosses at the end very hard indeed with the giant great stars every single one piece of piss nice and easy so it's that sort of vibe isn't it yeah that's exactly the same sort of way that you're going to have to approach this game as well different bosses call for different loadouts and sometimes entirely different mech setups and that's the thing with armored core you can do that though you have that flexibility because you're not locked in like in an elden ring to your stats you can change it up 100 percent makes it really fun in that regard that's one of the things i used to love about the old one not that i ever got very far in it to be fair i mean given the progress that i've made in this one so far i've unlocked an absolute plethora of armaments and additional body parts for my mechs i've got one that is sort of like a triangle shaped wheel design which is i think the game actually says that it was made in mind to simulate wheelchair type sports mobilization interesting stuff yeah that makes sense you'll have a sweet ass turning circle absolutely yeah i haven't actually used that one so much but i have occasionally dipped over to the tank style playthrough which gives you a hell of a lot more health makes you a lot more sturdy and supports firing whilst moving with a lot of weapons whereas yeah. when you're a bipedal mech you're gonna have to stop and stand still to fire some of those charge shots which isn't something you need to do with a tank yeah, that makes sense. And it adds a lot more dynamics to the choices for your mechs as well. You're trading mobility for just pure firepower. And you can also go the other way. Something that I've noticed is that if you keep your mech really lightweight and you also keep your armaments really lightweight as well, you can actually outpace some of the light arms fire from other mechs as well. So you really can be an annoying zippy mech that avoids all the gunfire and just slowly chips down the enemy's health. Yeah, death by a thousand cuts. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all possible in this game and it's really fun to do. Now, man, I'm so glad that you're enjoying it because uh, it seems to me like it's right up your street and it sounds like it, that it absolutely is. So keep at it man and in terms of what i can say about the game so far is that all the mechanics i've been introduced to they've absolutely nailed the combat feels absolutely punishing in terms of if you're panic pressing buttons and not coordinating your movements based on the various different kinds of stamina and cooldowns that you have yeah standard from soft yeah standard from soft stuff but i also feel like it's also been taken up a notch in terms of some of its core mechanics mm. really really impressive stuff and i'm very much looking forward to punching through to the end and then hopefully continuing on past new game plus but i think that's about me for the catch-up man i've had a great time playing the games that i did manage to get around to this week but i think that it's time that we moved on to the weekly gaming news
So our first article this week, from our friends over at Game Rant, Dragon's Dogma fans should be excited for September 21st. What's happening on September 21st, Will? Well James, I'll tell you. Dragon's Dogma fans can look forward to big news on September the 21st with new gameplay footage and information on Dragon's Dogma 2, set to be revealed during the Capcom online program. The original Dragon's Dogma garnered a strong following for its open world setting and unique action RPG mechanics, making the sequel highly anticipated amongst fans. Whilst fans hope for improvements in the new game, such as upgraded graphics and gameplay innovations, it is important for Capcom to maintain the scale and charm of the original whilst introducing new features. Fans were initially frustrated and a little disappointed by the lack of details when Dragon's Dogma 2 was announced back in July. This news will hopefully finally give us the answers we're craving. Or perhaps a little gameplay footage. Or at the very least, some concept art? Maybe? I mean, I'd very much like to see some gameplay footage. On the Steam page for Dragon's Dogma 2, there is screenshots, but they look like they're taken straight from Dragon's Dogma 1. Right, <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, so I don't know whether that's actually legit or not. But yeah, we need to see a bit more of this. This is something that I should be more excited about than I am, I think. I have a I have a weird soft spot for the first one, as I've mentioned on previous episode. I've tried to play it about 10 times over the years, and I've never got very far. I've had similar experience myself as well. It's a game that I like to admire from afar. Yeah, I like to play it. It's just that I don't like to play it for very long, apparently. <laughs> but for me, they really need to, kind of what you said there, they need to make it a little bit newer whilst sticking to the core of what made Dragon's Dogma Dragon's Dogma because yeah. the whole climbing on enemies thing is f***ing awesome as well as some of the innovative stuff you could do in terms of the class customization as well uh, yeah that's a fair comment like a, a spellcaster bowman is a really awesome mechanic as far as I'm concerned yeah they weren't the first to do that though I don't think it's more Dungeons and Dragons stuff before the way that yeah you're right the way that in yeah. this sort of RPG, the way that it was implemented yeah. in that yeah Good you're right but yes gameplay footage is what we need I'd like to see what this game's going to look like please well we don't have long to wait just another 20 days and counting as of this moment. There you go. But with news of Dragon's Dogma 2 over, it's time to move on to our next article of the day. New Pokemon from the Scarlet and Violet DLC have been leaked by ex-user Kafotix and reposted by popular leaks and rumours poster Centro Leaks. So amongst these leaks, we're seeing a couple of new Pokemon. Uh, the first one up is Sinistar, which is oh, uh, obviously oh, a Pokemon. So cringe. <laughs> <laughs> As the name implies, it's a reference to uh, tea type Pokemon. It's Chai. It's, it's a reference to Chai because this is Sinus yeah. Tea, the teapot Pokemon. Right. I was going to say, this isn't the first tea related Pokemon. That is, is that really what it's going to be called? Sinister. <laughs> Sinister. Yeah, absolutely. It pretends to be tea, trying to fool people into drinking it so it can drain their life force. Its ruse is generally unsuccessful, according to the Pokedex entry. Yeah, and it's green, so it's definitely a play on Chai. Yeah, so this Pokemon resembles uh, a kind of a nebulous blob of green sat in a brown cup, but it's got a little cute set of arms, and it's wearing some sort of, maybe a bamboo cap or something like that, I think. It looks like a carved bamboo cap, maybe. So there you go, man. That is uh, the first of our leaked Pokemon designs and do you know do you know what I, i've been harsh it, it actually it's all right it's fine it looks exactly the same as the other two in its evolution line but it's green instead of purple <laughs> but you may feel different about the next pokemon up on the list and for me personally i'm actually weirdly excited for this pokemon despite the fact that i'm, I'm not really a pokemon fan myself next on our list is ursa luna the blood moon form 
So this is a variation on Ursaluna, the pre-existing Pokemon, which is a large bear-like Pokemon. So for, for those of Pokemon fans among us, it is um, the third entry in the Teddy Ursa evolution line. Teddy Ursa, Ursaring, Ursaluna. Teddy Ursa and Ursaring being normal type, Ursaluna being a normal ground type. Right, well it sounds like they've developed this class quite a bit since then, and I'll go ahead and read the Pokedex entry, following on with a bit more information. Ursaluna Bloodmoon form crossed the sea and drifted ashore in a new land. Surviving in this place led it to take on a unique appearance and gain special powers. This special Ursaluna can see in the dark with its left eye, and protects itself with mud that is as hard as iron. So I've heard that they're actually going to make this a Steel-type Pokemon as well. Well, if it's mud, does that mean it's becoming Steel Ground? That was the implication as far as I'm aware, and rumour has it that its special ability will also allow it to hit Ghost-types with normal and fighting moves. Oh, and the other thing is Steel Ground is a pretty excellent typing, if that's what it's going to be. I'm struggling, Mm, I'm mm. desperately trying to think what its weaknesses are. I mean, I think it's weak to fire, but the ground type is super effective against fire, so you essentially neutralise that. And what I like most about this Pokemon is its design is the thing that grabbed me the most, i got to say. So yeah. it does resemble uh, mostly uh, a regular Ursaluna, except that it looks a lot more dark and corrupted. It almost looks like a zombified version of an Ursaluna. Yeah, if you, if you think of Brian from Tekken, it's that sort of vibe on an Ursaluna. Yeah, yeah. It looks like uh, the Borg from Star Trek got hold of an Ursaluna and kind of turned it into like a half-zombie, half-machine-type bear. And it's got like a large gaping crack in its head with an exposed red orb in there as well. Yeah, presumably the blood moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it does look very cool in this picture you've got here. Very cool stuff. I just hope that these leaks are accurate because, I mean, I'm not going to lie, Sinistra is is pretty cringe. Spot on. I'm here for it. (laughs) But this uh, Saluna does look pretty badass. Yeah, man, I think this is definitely cool news for Pokemon fans and even pretty cool for myself, i got to say. Yeah, although I am a little bit reticent to spend £30 on the DLC. Yeah, yeah, that's a conversation for another but that's, day. That's a different, yeah, <laughs> conversation for a different day. Okay, James, so with the Pokemon talk packed up for another week, let's move on to our third and final article of the day from NME.com. Saints Row developer Volition shuts down only two months after its 30th anniversary. Volition, the developer behind such games as Descent, Red Faction, and Saints Row, announced that he has been shut down by Embracer Group. We've previously covered the Embracer Group before, even as early as the first episode of the podcast, where we talked about their acquisition of the Lord of the Rings franchise and their hopes of turning it into one of the biggest names in gaming. Yeah, how's that going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how's that going? <laughs> So that news was shortly followed by yet more news of the very poor reception to the Saints Row reboot that Embracer Group funded. And much later, as we touched on there, we also covered the extremely negatively reviewed Gollum game, also published by Embracer Group. Yeah, really showing their gaming chops with those titles. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the publisher, uh, so these are the money guys rather than the game designing guys. But unfortunately, those sorts of poor decisions and pushing out games in those sorts of states has almost definitely led to some of the news that we're covering just now. Absolutely. In a post on LinkedIn, the developers explain, This past June, Embracer Group announced a restructuring program to strengthen Embracer and maintain its position as a leader in the video game industry. As part of that program, they evaluated strategic operational goals and made the difficult decision to close Volition effective immediately. So... Again, we're hearing a lot of similar statements that I kind of derided on last week's podcast that you mentioned in terms of the Bioware layoffs. A lot of these sentiments are almost exactly the same in terms of we're trying to streamline and focus in on what we're doing next. Yeah, all this usual corporate bullshit. 
Absolutely, yeah. Just corporate bullshit and excusing the fact that they're essentially having to lay off staff due to poor financial decisions that they've made in the past. The same message was also shared to Volition's own website titled Farewell. Founded in 1993, the Illinois developer was famous for its first-person shooter series Descent and the Red Faction series in the 90s and early 2000s, which were considered classics of the genre in time. And Red Faction, the ones that sort of pioneered collapsible buildings, weren't they? Yeah, or at least progressed well, at least it to the well. level of destruction yeah. that was available in Red Faction. Absolutely, you could yeah. storm straight through a building and leave a gaping hole behind. Yeah, yeah, they were doing some really impressive boundary-pushing stuff at the time. Yeah, shout-outs. However, unfortunately, it appears that the newest Saints Row game from Volition, released back in 2022, did not meet internal expectations for parent company Embracer Group. As a result, Embracer Group transferred Volition to Gearbox to make the most of the latter's expertise. To help our team, we are working to provide job assistance and help the smooth transition for our Volition family members, it continued. Finally, the team said that the fans of its games will always be in our hearts and thank them for their years of support. This is yet more sad news of closures amongst, as I touched on earlier, the news we discovered last week of Bioware's layoffs. And again, it's a very familiar message that I just read there around trying to provide some sort of assurance that they'll be able to merge employees and avoid jobs being lost. However, it seems pretty non-committal there. And I wouldn't be surprised at all that some of these displaced workers are going to have to go out and find their own jobs again. I never like to hear of anyone losing their jobs, especially like this, because it's going to be the Volition team, as we've touched upon there, are kind of paying for decisions made above them that were sort of yeah. done poorly and uh, very unfair on them. As we've mentioned, there's a lot of talent in that group. They've been at the forefront of some very cool mechanics and innovations in gaming. So fingers crossed they all land somewhere else. Yeah, 100% agreed, man. It's sad news, no matter which way you cut it. Okay, finishing the news on a little bit of a low note out there. I think it's time that we move swiftly on to Completionist Corner. Here we go for the Completionist's Corner. We left off last week with our respective Commander Shepherds being informed by the elusive man that in order to use the Omega-4 Mass Effect Relay and therefore take our fight directly to the enemy collectors, we must first obtain a device called an IFF key. An IFF key, also known as an identification friend or foe key, will be used by Shepard to take the Normandy and the other crew members to safely travel to the Galactic Core using the Relay. The IFF key is located on a derelict 2km long Reaper vessel orbiting a planet called Nemasign. In Mass Effect 1, we learn that the Reapers are a highly advanced race of synthetic organic starships. Although the Reaper is maintaining a Mass Effect field, the seemingly lifeless ship sustains severe damage and the crew conclude that the Reaper must have died, or was at least reduced to minimal functioning around 37 million years ago after being hit by a mass acceleration round by an unknown alien race. Shepard departs for the Reaper vessel, and upon entering the vicinity, Joker, pilot of the Normandy, warns us that there is a Geth ship alongside the Reaper. We have been told before that a team of Cerberus scientists were deployed to study the Reaper after seeing the Geth close by. At this point, it's pretty clear why communications from the Cerberus team suddenly ceased. We progress through the ship, learning more about the fate of the unfortunate scientists. It becomes clear that the Reaper is indeed still functional, and has been slowly warping and indoctrinating the research team since they arrived. To make matters worse, the Reaper has also reactivated its kinetic barriers, meaning Shepard and their crew are now trapped on board. Luckily, our faithful AI companion Edie has a plan. In addition to securing the IFF, we now need to destroy a Mass Effect generator which will drop the Reaper barrier and allow us to escape. 
A plan in Mass Effect is hardly ever without complications, and this job is no exception. The Mass Effect core we must now destroy will also cause the Reaper to fall out of orbit and begin its descent before crashing into the nearby planet. Edie sends us the coordinates for our next objectives, and we make our way onwards. Remember that Geth ship Joker mentioned that was hanging about around the Reaper? It turns out that the alien, AI-networked robotic race has turned most of our long-lost research crew into roaming, zombie-like husks who now linger around inside the Reaper, providing yet more opportunities to test out the flashy firepower and biotic abilities we have acquired so far. We fight our way past a bunch of husks and scions before entering a large chamber. In the distance, we can see what looks like a damaged Geth trooper keeping Shepard firmly within the centre of its sights. As our crew steps out into the open, the Geth places his finger on the trigger and pulls. The bullet soars towards Shepard and passes just over their shoulder in the nick of time, taking out another husk that had managed to get the jump on Shepard and was about to attack. According to our knowledge so far, all Geth have been hostile towards humans, so why is this one helping us now? Before we get to thank our mysterious saviour, they manage to escape, and Shepard and their team is once again hit with another deluge of scions and husks. We finally make our way to the Mass Effect core room, which is protected by heavy metal shutters which open and close periodically. Our evasive Geth sniper is hacking into a control panel across the room from us, before being attacked and knocked unconscious by a group of sneaky husks. Shepard and their crew must defend against waves of attacking enemies and take the opportunity whenever it presents itself to damage the core once it becomes exposed. After destroying the core, thereby dooming the giant reaper vessel we are on board, we decide to return the favour and save our saviour. After retrieving the IFF key and picking up the unconscious Geth, Shepard radios Joker aboard the Normandy and the team manage to escape the plummeting wreckage. Back on board the Normandy, our two Cerberus operative team members, Miranda and Jacob, are discussing what's best to do with the captured and now temporarily dormant Geth. Miranda is keen to hand it over to Cerberus teams for research, however Jacob wants to flush it out the nearest airlock given the risks involved with having a potentially active Geth aboard the ship. Shepard decides to keep the Geth on board for now and attempt to communicate with it, once they figure out how to wake it up that is. The IFF key we retrieved will also take some time to decode and become usable by the crew, so in the meantime we should continue preparing and finishing off any remaining missions we might have left. So at this point James, I think it's a good time to mention the loyalty missions in the game, which I think so far we've pretty much neglected to talk about, although it does sound like independently in our own playthroughs we have actually progressed those throughout the game. Pretty important things to do, uh, a lot of them are a signpost way to earning the loyalty of your crew members, and the loyalty of your crew members is going to be very important in some of the later events of the game. Crucial, in fact. Life or death, you might say. <laughs> you might say indeed. <laughs> So James, uh, lay it on me. What was your favourite couple of loyalty missions in the game? <sighs> favourite couple of loyalty missions? So when I originally played, I've got to say I adored the entire Garrus storyline because Garrus is my boy. Right, and yeah. him getting revenge on the guy that sold out his group of vigilantes yeah. um, was uh, it was just quite fun. And when I did Renegade playthrough, it was really fitting because you just right, shoot yeah. him in the head. And yes, I, I actually did. did exactly the same thing with my Paragon playthrough because I'm not f***ing with Garrus. Oh, right. Okay. So you still did take some Renegade actions on this playthrough? Oh, yeah, right? man. Because Garrus is my boy. Like, <laughs> I, I wasn't 100% perfect. I wasn't going to be oh, like, man, oh, no, I dude, don't f***ing do it. I was like, no, nah, you can kill him. It's fine. Now I feel like I was unnecessarily evil in my playthrough for no reason because I was just taking all the Renegade options out of duty <laughs> rather than... I will say that is the only one I did this. Because right, Garrus okay, is my boy. Okay. Everyone else I was pure paragon. Like, for example, um, we've spoken about this off pod, but in Zaid's mission, he is like full renegade. He's going off to kill like um, one of the bosses of the Blue Legion or Blue Suns or whatever. Blue he... Suns, yeah. And um, when you paragon 
the shit out of Zaid in that, you actually like punch Zaid in the face so that he doesn't kill people randomly. And like, <laughs> you want to waste time out here? Go ahead. I'm gonna kill you. You're endangering lives and the mission for your own selfish revenge. You really want to do this, Shepard? This one was just because Garrus is my boy, and I and I want him to like like me, basically. <laughs> It's interesting that you mentioned the Garrus one, because I actually, and I said this on stream as well, that was actually one of the missions that I liked the least, because it just involved a lot of tailing someone around. I kind of preferred the shooty, gun-heavy missions instead. So I, I think I even openly said on stream, like, worst loyalty mission, I'm going on record <laughs> and saying it. But I can appreciate if uh, your thing is Garrus as, yeah, yeah. as a squad member, then absolutely it adds a lot more kind of context to his current situation and a lot of the time the reasons why you actually ended up having to save his ass at the start of the game exactly it's the context thing for me and obviously how that progresses into three as well that, that's another big right. thing okay it all ties together exactly and the other one from the original game that i'll give the shout out to just because i think it's a really well done quest i don't like the companion particularly but um jacob's one where his dad has uh, crashed a ship on an island and uh, the local fauna makes people sort of go brain dead and just do whatever yeah. he wants temporarily whilst you eat it, it decreases your brain functioning exactly and he just makes a harem for himself just... <laughs> you know i do laugh but at the same time it's a very creepy thing to do oh, you're essentially taking creepy. advantage of your crew members and uh, as you say he kind of separates all of the men and women and then yeah. takes the women for himself and the men are just kind of left to scratch their heads and uh eat this fruit that makes them dumber let's i'll be honest the women are doing that as well but he also like kills off eventually all of the officers so that he's just got all the women to himself and stuff That's right yeah. yes. it's proper dark and then he tries to be all like oh no i, I just needed saving I I you guys don't understand what it was like yeah. pa power <laughs> corrupts and it's like F off me you little pervert. Yeah, so in that yeah. mission, uh, I, I don't know what the, the Paragon ending was, but uh, Shepard, on my playthrough, put the gun in the guy's hand and told him, shoot yourself in the head <laughs> yeah. as he walks off. And that's exactly what uh, Jacob's dad ended up doing. No, I mean, Paragon playthrough, he just gets arrested. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because you can, you can like tell Jacob to kill him, I think, but... I was Sorry, like I think that's actually what I ended up doing. Instead, yeah. I think I put the gun in Jacob's hand, who then yeah. passed it to his father and said something like, the dad I don't know would have taken responsibility for the sh that he did. Yeah. <laughs> so the way you take responsibility is to put a gun to your head, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, Renegade, yeah, baby! But Paragon, it was just like J saying to Jacob, hey, he's not worth it, mate, you're much better than him. Right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boring! Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's, I, I, Jacob's just a very bland character, in my opinion. So yeah. it's a shame it wasn't on, like, a different character that was cool. Proper Caden Elenko vibes on this one. I think he's worse than Caden, but that's only <laughs> worse than Caden. I have a soft spot for Caden because he's voiced by the same guy that did Carthanassi from um, Kotor. Right. Okay, so okay. that is me being just a fanboy, beloved Bioware voice. Exactly. That, that's just that's just me. But then in terms of specifically the legendary edition, I want to give a shout out to Kasumi's one. I, I thought that was really cool. Yes, I'm right there with you. Infiltrating the uh, crazy South African gangster's house and stealing his. Sh and then having a big old mech fight at the end, I just thought that was quite nice. Yeah, that was a fun mission where you had to figure out different ways of infiltrating the main safe. You needed to get a DNA sample from the guy's bedroom. Yeah, voice sample. Exactly that, yeah. after standing there recording him. You have to encourage him to speak, and then he ends up going on a whole, almost like shepherd-worthy, long yeah. motivational speech. He gets a full standing ovation from his party members. It's just a, It was just thought it was a really well-done quest. And it also changes up the environment quite a bit as well. Even in yeah. some of the cutscenes, it's like quite a breath of fresh air. Yeah, lavish little house. It's obviously not a desert island because it's a planet, but it's the equivalent of a desert island, it feels like. Yeah. Really yeah. cool. Proper, like, evil genius's lair. It was cool. Yeah. 
multiple ways to approach the objectives as well. So it shows quite a bit of depth there in terms of the planning. In terms of like scope and size of the DLC, it's not massive, but there's a lot of attention to detail there in that one kind of condensed space. Yeah, and that's the same for the Shadow Broker DLC as well, I've got to say. Not a lot in it, but really well told. But how about you, man? Do you have any that uh, stood out for you in particular? Uh, so I'm right there with you on the Kasumi mission. I definitely feel like that one was a particular standout. I also did like the Jacob mission. And the other one that I particularly liked was Jack's loyalty mission as well, where you go back yeah, to the place where she was raised. Jack was a character that I really liked in the game. So probably similar reasons to why you enjoyed the Garrus mission so much. Jack's mission was particularly memorable for me, and I did like the fact that she was going back to the place where she grew up with the sole intention of blowing the place the f*** up. Sounded like a pure renegade plan to me. And what's really nice as well is the Paragon version of that is like you help her through it and you sort of almost, it's like a active therapy. Right, and yeah. She doesn't, and she doesn't end up blowing it up, I don't think. I'm not sure what doctrine of therapy Shepard applied in my playthrough, uh, but it does feel like the overall outcome was that Jack found it pretty therapeutic, blowing the planet up. And sorry, I am lying. She did still blow it up. She just doesn't blow it up with the guy inside it. Right, okay. Fair enough. And uh, another standout mission for me was also Grunt's mission. Uh, after awakening oh, yeah. your Krogan buddy, he starts to get a little hormonal. Uh, he's entering his prepubescent phase. And I think that they need to go to his homeworld to Chanka so they can jerk him off and do some sort of ritual. Uh, and I think that uh, at that point he gets rid of all his Krogan teenage angst. And that mission essentially involves you going through various combat trials, earning the respect of his Krogan warlord buddies, and ultimately results in you fighting a giant fresher moor, which is like a massive space worm that comes out of the nearby sand dunes. You're standing on a platform having to shoot it with all your squad mates. Much bigger thresher moor than the ones in Mass Effect 1, which were small. Yeah, I think that there was one big right? thresher moor in Mass Effect 1, but even then, this one is much bigger than big, that as they're well. They're not big, big. No. Not big compared to this one no yeah exactly and i think that that mission has a bit of an optional like kind of skill tier thing i did manage to actually defeat the worm and at that point they make a big deal out of the fact that no one's been able to do that for a long time since the likes of the current war chief since uh, not rex our old squad member however i think that it may also be possible to just kind of survive the time limit on this one and uh and complete that quest without having to kill the fresher worm but at that point i mean if you got the firepower to do it why not light it up the only good bug is a dead bug I've never not killed it, so I don't know. Yeah, why wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, and also, another side mission that's worth noting, particularly for my playthrough, is one where we accompany our newly acquired Justicar Samara on a mission to hunt down a weird, sex-craving, mind-melting demon, which also happens to be her Asari daughter. It's essentially kind of like a succubus with, uh, with mind-melting properties as well. So at this point, we actually travelled all the way back to Omega, at the very start of the game and head back to our old comfy nightclub afterlife after speaking to aria for a bit we eventually find signs and follow the trail all the way to samara's daughter where we're provided with an option once samara and her daughter morinth start fighting at that point in the game we were actually given the completely out of left field option that over the course of the game if you like what you've been hearing about morinth in terms of her weird sexy powers and her abilities to control biological beings minds then you can actually side with her and instead of helping samara you can actually kill samara with the help of morinth at that point morinth convinces you that she's able to adequately mimic her mother and joins the crew hiding under her mother's identity so at that point, I've got a brand new crew member. 
another crew member that uh, I know as Morinth, but the rest of the crew, for all intents and purposes, still refer to her as Samara. Even though they look different. Yeah, they look slightly different, but she does insist that she's a bit of a ringer for her mother. <laughs> to be fair... Samara's got much bluer eyes, <laughs> Just because Samara hasn't been on the ship that long, we've only had like yeah. a week in between playthroughs. They're not looking at her face, man. Let's, uh, let's just say that. The clothing is rather revealing. I'm surprised that anyone manages to do anything other than stare at her chest and just mumble to themselves. <laughs> goo goo ga ga. I want milk. I don't think there's too much difference mechanically between the two. I think Morinth has a slightly different ability. Is it Reeve? Yes, it's Reeve, I think. And the fact that she can actually mind control biological life forms, whereas her mother specializes in mind controlling AI synthetic life forms. So it just kind of does the old switch rule on that. So I think that's enough talk about the loyalty missions in the game. I think it's also time that we got back to waking up our, as of right now, dormant Geth buddy. So at this point, after waking up the mysterious Geth, he explains that he regards the Reaper-allied Geth as heretics, and the Reapers as enemies. He also identifies that we have some common goals, and therefore agrees to join the crew. Shepard Commander opposes the old machines. Shepard Commander opposes the heretics. Cooperation furthers mutual goals. ED names our new companion as Legion, in reference to their hive mind-style existence with other Geth, and an extract from a Bible verse, My name is Legion, for we are many. So, we got a new robot body on our crew. Yes, cool character, Legion. Wasn't expecting this, I gotta say. No, I wasn't either until I saw him wearing some N7 armor, and then I was like, yeah, he's gonna be on our side. Right, okay, okay. Was that just during the promo of the game or something? No, it's when you meet him. He's got, um, he's patched himself up with a bit of Shepard's armor. So oh, like, oh, right, yeah. okay. I hadn't clocked that. Because, and the other thing is, by that point, you, you've done all your and you've got one slot left on your companion, so it's like, who the f*** is this? I gotta say, I never expected that that blank spot would be filled by the Geth, kind of what felt like the primary antagonists of the last game. So after polishing off a few more side missions and the remaining squad loyalty missions, Shepard is radioed by Joker, who explains that the IFF key has been hooked up and is ready to go. Edie jumps in to mention that although the device is now powered, it's still causing some instability in other ship systems, and recommends that we take some more time to prepare before using it. Shepard decides to wait a little longer and departs via a shuttle to the next mission, leaving the Normandy under the capable care of Joker. With Shepard and the crew now departed, Joker sits in the pilot seat arguing with Edie. Edie seems to think that she has detected a signal hidden in the static waves of the IFF, and this signal is in fact transmitting the location of the Normandy. Just as Joker asks Edie who they could possibly transmit the signal to, the giant collector vessel that we have been pursuing suddenly decelerates from warp, and appears towering over the Normandy, dwarfing our relatively small vessel. Not only was the IFF concealing a tracker, it also deployed a virus into the Normandy, effectively disabling the ship along with its defences. The crew members still aboard the Normandy scramble to retrieve weapons as the Collectors begin their attack on the ship. Back in the cockpit, Joker is advised by Edie that she can deploy countermeasures, but she's only able to do so if he agrees to unlock her AI beyond normal safety protocols and essentially hand the ship over to the artificial entity. Joker reluctantly agrees and makes his way to the AI core, avoiding the Collector troops and Praetorians which are now on board the ship, actively attacking and capturing various crew members all around us. By some miracle, Joker is able to avoid the invading Collectors, bypasses ED's AI safety protocols, and reactivates the ship's primary drives down in engineering. With the help of ED, Joker manages to accelerate the Normandy away from the attacking Collector ship, and Edie then seals Joker in and opens the airlocks, which kills any remaining enemy collectors on board. Fortunately, 
or perhaps unfortunately for our ship's crew, the collectors had managed to capture them all on board their own vessel before the airlocks were opened, sparing them from also being sucked out into space. Joker tells ED to send a message to Shepard's shuttle and waits for the commander to return. In the comms room, Shepard grills Joker on exactly what happened whilst they were gone. Joker and ED fill Shepard in on how the ship was compromised by the booby-trapped IFF key. Thankfully, the IFF key is now fully functional, meaning Shepard now has the option to travel via the Omega-4 relay to attack the collectors and rescue the crew of the Normandy. Jacob pitches in and wants to go right ahead and save the crew, whilst Miranda cautions that going into a fight unprepared could jeopardise the whole mission. At this point, Shepard has a choice to make. Go with heroism into the unknown to fight a mysterious enemy, or take time to prepare and gather strength to face their foe. So, at this point in the game, there is, as James just said there, a big choice to make. Do we stay, or do we go? The countdown begins. This is quite a crucial point in the game, where, depending on the decisions you make, you may lose more of your Normandy crew members. James, you went ahead straight away with your mission, bravely stepping into the unknown. I had actually, before the Reaper IFF mission that we previously discussed, because I, I knew that that was sort of the soft point of no return for the game right i'd actually done all of my loyalty missions all every single side quest before i did the iff mission right yes and what happens is is that you then have one more mission you can do after the iff mission before you get this thing that we've just talked about trigger and that for me was legion's loyalty mission fine okay okay so that was the final thing i had to do every single crew member loyal so when i had this choice to make it was like right yeah we're and going straight through we're going to save everyone very nice how did it go for you on my side i'd actually done the iff key mission a little earlier last week not being aware of the fact that that was the soft cutoff point so at this point i've just sort of carried on everything was normal i enjoyed the fact that my ship was nice and quiet i had plenty of room <laughs> to stretch out i was wandering the room enjoying having meals by myself in the canteen lovely lovely and i went ahead and did something like five or six different loyalty missions <laughs> along the way um, which uh, may have had some pretty dire consequences later on in this game. Oops. Whether we waited to grind some more missions or went full steam ahead, our paths converge as both our shepherds head back to the Sara Barak system to use the Omega-4 relay to traverse all the way to the Galactic Core and finally begin our assault on the Collectors. This is the true point of no return in the game, and once we've travelled through this ancient relay, there's no turning back. Time for one final meeting with the elusive man before we begin our voyage. Even the elusive man doesn't know what awaits Shepard on the other side, but he wishes him well on his mission. Shepard assures the elusive man that a challenge such as this one is their specialty. The commander then closes the call and heads towards the bridge as Joker prepares for the relay launch. The method of travel is similar to all mass relays in that the Normandy must fly alongside the relay where it will then be flung across space in an instant, kind of like being fired out of a giant space cannon. As the Normandy is making its journey, several devices begin to malfunction. However, Joker is thankfully able to reroute the power to avoid any serious damage to the Normandy's systems. In a blink, the ship then rapidly decelerates into what resembles a junkyard suspended in space. The rumours of no ship ever returning after using the Omega-4 relay are clearly illustrated as the Normandy is forced to take evasive manoeuvres to avoid large ancient wreckages and floating ambiguous ship parts. The litter of debris is no match for our seasoned pilot Joker, and he manages to pull free of the hazardous area. ED reports in to let us know she has detected an energy signature located close to a nearby black hole. Shepard is able to easily discern that the energy reading is indeed coming from the collector base that they can see in the distance. 
As the Normandy begins to approach the base, several small drones hidden amongst the wreckages activate and begin to trail the ship. Edie manages to warn Joker of the danger just as the drones begin to fire burning red lasers, which the Agile ship is able to evade thanks to Joker's skillful piloting, whilst Edie uses her AI sensors to return fire on the tiny but deadly stalkers. Regardless of Joker's skill, the Normandy does still take a few hits, so remember that armour upgrade Jacob recommended we get for the ship? Provided that Shepard bit the bullet and shelled out on some protection, the Normandy is able to withstand the blasting lasers. Lasers aren't the only trick up the non-existent sleeves of these pesky pursuers, they are also able to detonate themselves if they come into close contact with a target. Things like the Normandy's engineering deck hole, for instance. Yes, and fun fact, if you don't take that armour upgrade, uh, someone dies there straight away. One of your companions gets Do you know killed. who dies? It depends uh, on various things. It can be one of four people, depending on what's happened previously. It's like Jack, Tally, Kasumi, or Thane, I think, can die at that one. Or Garrus, maybe, the engine room one. Oh, wow, Garrus is a big so, loss. Yeah, so you can get like quite a few that can die there. But doesn't matter, because we both did the armour upgrade. Despite the armour upgrade, the hull has still been breached and Shepard must descend with their team to take on this new menace, also known as an Oculus. As we enter the large hangar, Shepard defends against the large metal sphere, dodging laser blasts as the ball flies in and out of the breached hull. The Oculus seems to second-guess its brazen assault thanks to the sheer wall of firepower we are able to offload in its direction, and the attacker exits for a breather. The Normandy is still under attack, however, and Joker is attempting to lose our enemies in the field of debris. This is also causing the Normandy to undergo a bit of a beating, as the surrounding environment is littered with dangerous floating obstacles. Even the most skilled of pilots would find it impossible to scrape through without a few dings here and there. Provided Shepard has listened to his crew and decided to fork out on the upgraded shield, shout Samara, who you killed, you evil person. The Normandy is able to stay on course and emerge with only a few minor scratches. A warning appears on Joker's console, signalling the return of the ball-shaped menace we now know as an Oculus. With the initial fight fresh in the minds of Shepard and his team, they are able to overcome the drone as Joker begins to once again emerge from the field of debris. As the view clears, we can see that the Normandy has managed to zigzaggedly approach the Collector base, and is now within plotting distance of a landing. Before we can figure out a place on the base to leave our ship, the Collectors send forth a familiar-looking enemy. None other than the Collector vessel that killed our Alliance crew, destroyed our old ship, and sent us into a record-breaking nosedive into the planet below at the start of the game. It's time to see if that Phanix cannon was worth the resources. The Normandy unleashes a bright blue blast which hits the Collector ship dead on and causes a large explosion. Yeah, think Dragon Ball Z, Kamehameha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With perhaps much less of a warm-up until yeah. that gets unleashed. We don't have to like watch 20 to 30 minutes of them doing other sh in the meantime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the hyper-agile Normandy is able to duck, dive, and dodge the incoming collector laser. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. And maneuver behind for one final blast of its cannons to finish the wounded ship off. The cannons of the Normandy charge and violently pulse, jetting another stream of blue energy directly into the Collector foe, this time blasting a hole clean through and causing it to begin exploding and breaking apart. Once a fearsome and deadly enemy, now another pile of floating space junk to add to the surrounding piles. A f***ing revenge for the Normandy 1. Good sh that was some goddamn redemption right there. It's a really cool scene, that. Really enjoy. And Joker's loving life at this point as well. It's so <laughs> nice to see. Yeah, Joker likes his new toys that we've bought him. But during this prolonged battle, the Normandy has sustained a lot of damage, and Joker is struggling to maintain control. The damaged ship begins to crash into nearby obstacles, and after a while, succumbs to its wounds, crashing on the base below. 
The damage inflicted on our faithful ship in the last battles, along with the impact sustained during the crash, means that the ship is out of action for a while until Edie can restore systems. Shepard orders Joker to stay behind and help fix the ship, whilst Miranda is ordered to get the rest of the elite team into the briefing room. It's time to go, ladies and gentlemen. Time to begin the main assault. Shepard devises a plan to overload the critical systems of the station, which will lead to its self-destruction. There's two main routes, and our team will need to split up into squads to take on both these paths. Shepard must also choose someone to sneak through a ventilation system to unlock both of the paths that our squad will be following. With that said, let's let the listeners know who we picked, starting off with our shaft-seeking infiltrator. So, at this point, I actually picked Kasumi to be my infiltrator. Uh, based on her loyalty mission before, where we broke into a highly guarded safe, I figured a ventilation shaft would be pretty much cake for someone like Kasumi. Yes, uh, and I believe that is one of the two choices that can successfully do this. Uh, I picked the other one, Tally. Of course, yeah, agile, yeah. small, works well. Yep. Yeah. Good with technology, and I trust her. I have heard stories of people sending uh, Grunt into the ventilation shafts of this, which yeah. uh, is sadistic, but also quite funny in it's, terms of yeah. like the irony of sending this massive Krogan in to do the light work. It's, like, it's a meme run, but yeah. it's very, very <laughs> fun to do. Um, and at this point, you also, um, as you said there, you take two people with you and you send off another team uh, led by a person of your choosing. And uh, I personally picked Garrus to lead my second team. Nice, your most trusted right-hand man. Exactly. It was a shame not to have him with me, but I knew he'd get the job done. Well, do you know what? I made pretty much the exact same decision based on the exact same merits as well. So I chose Zaid Masani to represent and lead the second fire team. Nice, and I think they're both pretty good choices for that role. But I've never picked Zaid, so I don't know how that pans out. But depending on the dialogue choices we pick, Shepard delivers one of their signature motivational speeches to psych up the team before they all depart on this final suicide mission. And uh, I have to say, Will, that sending Tally and Garrus to do their jobs worked a treat. Both survived. Couple of hairy moments where Tally was getting a bit hot in the pipe before yeah. I could press the <laughs> yeah. switch to. You're kind of like battling through enemies to try and get to these valves, which is made a lot difficult by the amount of gunfire that's coming in your direction exactly. during this. You're fighting a lot of collectors at this point. They're constantly flying in, harbingers kicking in occasionally, you know. You've really kicked the ant's nest at this point. It is quite yeah. literally a swarming ant's nest. <laughs> How about you? How did it go for you, man? Uh, yeah, so uh, both fire teams were successful in this challenge. No casualties so far. And that brings us on to the uh, next bit of the mission then. So at this point, we are once again asked to assemble the squad for the mission, whereby I took Jack, my ever-faithful employee, and Morinth, my newly acquired squad member. James, who did you take for this section of the game? I actually personally had Grunt and Miranda with me, I believe, at this point. Okay, Miranda's got strong biotic abilities. Grunt's got a hell of a lot of firepower and resistances. Very good squad members to accompany you. And also Miranda was my romance option in this. All right, okay, so you're keeping your girl by your side. Well, after Liara had gone all, oh, I'm the Shadow Broker now and I'm evil now, I didn't think that fitted in with my Paragon character. You weren't feeling it so much anymore. Basically, I wanted the achievement for a second romance. Sleeping around. And, <laughs> and rekindling the the romance with Liara doesn't give you the achievement. So uh, I became a total slag. The go. story of the game presented itself with a natural opportunity for me to switch it up, so I switched it up. <laughs> 
any excuse. But but as you say there, her and Grunt is a, is a very good team because you've got biotics and then a tank, basically, along yeah. with me being a sniper and sitting back. It just works really well. How about you? Who did you take with you, man? So on this mission, I took the extremely biotically powerful Jack, my ever-faithful employee, and I also took Morinth, my newly acquired squad member on me with the mission. Just pure biotics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All of us specializing biotics. And as you can probably imagine, the powers were absolutely popping off during oh, yeah. the section. There's a lot of tightly packed enemies and a load of opportunity to use that big overload skill that you can use to kind of blast and send people flying. Really good yeah. stuff. And lots of big drops as well. So knocking yes. people off the sides. That's what we like. Uh, yeah, the push-pull biotics also came really in handy here as well. So Shepard and their team fight through hordes of collector drones who are occasionally remotely possessed and drastically empowered by their leader, Harbinger. All seems to be going well, and we can hear our teams making good progress over the radio as we make our way through the large open rooms of the collector base. We also need to assist our infiltrators as they make their way through the ventilation shafts by destroying heat exchange valves that allow them to escape the incoming heat. As Shepard hits the final valve, the squad are pursued by the collector swarms, but thanks to Morden's help, the team are able to defend the attack whilst our infiltrated squad mate rejoins us and attempts to open the locked door blocking our path. So at this point, as the door is being hacked by our infiltrator, they finally manage to get the door open, the whole of the squad goes through, and as the squad is struggling to get the door to close behind them, Kasumi's head unexpectedly jutted out behind the door, just in time to take a collector shot straight to the dome, unfortunately. Headshot. And that was all Kasumi wrote. This was a big shocker, man. I can't tell you how much I was surprised by this. I really wasn't expecting to lose Kasumi at this point. Was Kasumi not loyal? I gotta tell you, these hoes ain't loyal! Honestly, I thought all of my characters were loyal at this point because I did the loyalty missions. I didn't quite understand that there were also separate mechanics and different things that you could do that could perhaps end the mission in them not being loyal, or different conversations that you need to have earlier in the game to make them loyal. But yeah, no, unfortunately, for whatever reason, Kasumi wasn't loyal. At least I'm guessing that's the reason why she got domed, but I think yeah, that's no. the reason, yeah. yeah. She's definitely one of the characters that's best fitted to do the infiltration bit. Yeah, I know. I thought I did a good job on that, but I guess I yeah. didn't earn whole loyalty. I must have missed something earlier on in the game. So, uh, F in the chats for Kasumi. Well, Tally survived. No problem. Yeah, I guess you had to have done her loyalty mission. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, to be fair to her, her technological skills were never under question. Kasumi managed to get that door open and get yeah. it closed. She just took a bullet to the face in the process. Pretty bummed that uh, we lost Kasumi on this run. Uh, either way, after the doors open, the team push on and discover a large cluster of the capsules that the collectors have been using to capture and transport their kidnapped victims. On closer inspection, we notice that the people inside these pods are in fact the trapped crew members of the Normandy. Now, because I was able to get all my shit in order before I went off on this, I actually arrived there and was able to save literally everyone. Every single cadet, rookie, cook... All got saved. How about you, man? Uh, how'd, it, how'd it go for you, given that you... Uh, Spent a lot of time f***ing around following the yeah. fact that my crew got <laughs> uh, got captured. As I say, sort of indulging my antisocialness uh, may have led us astray on this one. And unfortunately, pretty much everyone that we saw inside the pods got turned to a liquidy mush and dissolved in front of our very eyes. Yeah. Pretty much everyone does die, except for our faithful and reliable good old Dr. Chakwas. Yeah. Who's now completely emotionally scarred. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially after telling us that she watched them one by one all die, slowly being liquefied into a raw genetic paste, and pumped through the large tubes we can see lining the cavernous ceilings and walls. 
Also, uh, a little bit later on in the game, but I'll go ahead and mention it now. I actually went ahead at this point and left Chakwas to fend for herself and get back to the Normandy, rather than sending a squad member with her, which also predictably led to Dr. Chakwas's death. F**k, you killed Dr. Chakwas? F**k yeah, I mean, Damn. at this point I was invested in being a complete douche. Oh man, you're, you're cruel. Well, like I did say earlier on as well, I was kind of working against... Uh, what I would call my good nature and taking all the renegade options and again in terms of ruthless efficiency we can't spare the men at this point so honestly that was kind of the main reasoning behind oh. leaving Chakwas to fend for herself I just figured that renegade Shepard would say that we couldn't spare the people we've got a mission to do I'll let you off because Kasumi died right but man that's cruel you, you, <laughs> you're saying it's cruel like this is some sort of like my moral choice I was dutifully playing the renegade option <laughs> You could still have sent some trash person back with her. Nah, we couldn't afford the bodies, man. We needed the bodies to... You literally have two extra bodies than the game intends you to have because of DLC. You can definitely afford the bodies. Renegade, baby! <laughs> so yeah, I sent Morden back with the whole crew and everyone f***ing made it because Morden's a legend. Right, okay, okay. Man, you killed Shaquis. I didn't even think you could kill Shaquis. That's <laughs> God damn. Shepard radios into Joker, who explains that in order to get to the next area, we have to traverse a room filled with collector swarms that are far too dense for Morden's protective technology to be effective, and the crew is at risk of being immediately overcome by the flurry of attacks. We devise a plan to use a biotic specialist from our team to generate a localised biotic energy field around a small group of squad members, in order to fend off the swarms whilst the rest of the squad push onwards through yet more attacking collector drones. So at this point, we are provided with another choice for our next plan of action. I went ahead and chose Thane Krios as the shield boy for our squad, and for the leader of the diversion team, I chose Grunt. And I went ahead and took Jack and Morimp for my squad members once again. What about you, James? That's really interesting because I didn't think Thane had biotic powers. So that's a really interesting choice there. I uh, can't argue with the others, though, to be fair. Um, I had Jack as my shield person. Very strong biotic, yeah. And uh, my second choice would have been Samara. But Miranda offers her services and I'm like, yo, you're not doing this. <laughs> right, she does. She does put her hand up quite eagerly for that. I think Jack kind of fights it, her on that a bit as well. Exactly. And Jacob in the first one was like, hey, I'll go through the fence. It's like, bro, no, you won't. Stop it. Um, <laughs> you guys are way too boring to do anything cool. And I once again had uh, Garrus leading my second team. Why f*** with something that's not broken, you know? And once again, I had Grunt and uh, Miranda by my side. Very consistent I was through this. Fair enough. What I will say uh, in response to your surprise at me picking Thane was that the death of Kasumi had me a little spooked at this point. I can't lie. <laughs> And after choosing Kasumi as my leader and kind of main task doer, I became a little bit paranoid that anyone that I was going to assign one of the main duties in the game was going to die. So Thane was very much a kind of like picking the straw, straw which one would I <laughs> care the less about losing? Oh, if Thane dies, I don't give a f***. <laughs> yeah. He's way too boring. He's like got way too much of a moral compass to be on my renegade squad. So if anyone was going to get lost, it would have been Thane, I think, at that point. We got yeah, rid of the Justicar. car. <laughs> Can't do anything about Miranda and Jacob, so it's got to be Thane. <laughs> but that was my paranoid reason for choosing Thane, anyway. Yeah, oh man, this mission does that to you, especially if you're losing people. <laughs> yeah. The plan is successful, and both teams manage to repel the defending enemies, and they all push on deeper into the inner rooms of the base. 
Shepard and their team pass the final hurdle near the exit, running and gunning through ceaseless enemies as our chosen shield maiden struggles to maintain the protective biotic barrier. Or in James' case, probably doesn't struggle to maintain that barrier given the strength of Jack. Oh yeah, no struggle whatsoever. Right, okay, yeah, at this point my Thane was almost on his knees at this point, sustaining the biotic barrier. Yeah, I mean she was a little bit knackered at the end, but she was like, yeah, I'm Jack though, I'm just gonna fucking power through. And I think at the end she does some badass blast everyone. Like, so you're back through the door and then she just lets the shield go and just knocks all the collectors back and then the door closes. Really cool sh**. That played out a little bit differently in my playthrough, James, but we'll get oh, yeah? onto that in just a second. <laughs> the team encounters another door that needs hacking, so whilst our specialist is on the job, Shepard and the team continue to fend off enemies who are relentlessly pelting the team with gunfire and swarming attacks. And at this point, James... I'm very, very sorry to say that Jack actually got got by the goddamn swarm. Damn. So at this point, she got a little too brave. She clearly didn't have the space in time to use her biotic abilities and ran forward very quickly, being enveloped and taken away by the swarm. So uh, yeah, that happened pretty quick time and uh, very, very gutted there. If you want to see my reaction to some of these deaths as I lost my squad, have a look on YouTube at some of the final parts of the game, or heck, why not go ahead and watch the whole playthrough from the very beginning, and you'll get to see some of these painful losses that I experienced this week. This is very weird, man, because I was under the impression that if they're loyal, they can't die. Unless you put them in the wrong spot deliberately. So I think that this was probably due to the fact that I kind of stoked the fire with an argument between Jack and Miranda. And at that point, I had lost the loyalty of both of them. Uh... Hadn't realised that was the case, though, and then proceeded to complete the game without Jack's loyalty, which uh, unfortunately resulted in her demise. Well, that's a real shame for you, especially, because she, was, she wasn't necessarily your bae, but she was like your... She was my right-hand lady, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She was your Garrus. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure, for sure, yeah. James, the heart take doesn't stop there i'm sorry to say oh, because no. at this point i also lost my boy grunt no not grunt, grunt got gatted i am very sorry to say absolute f***ing disaster oh dude that's a big loss big loss especially for the next bit of this mission jeez so uh shortly after grunt succumbs to his injuries by the collector gunfire joker then radios in to confirm to us that dr chakwas indeed didn't make it on her struggle back to the normandy so the crew really is dropping like flies for me at this point yeah uh, they're all still alive for me don't want to rub it in too <laughs> at much, this point you haven't lost anyone <laughs> not lost a single person no everyone made it back to the normandy safely and more didn't looked after them Renegade, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Paragon, bitch. <laughs> so as the squad closes the large heavy door, they are granted a brief reprieve from the onslaught to collect themselves and plot the next course of action. Proper licking their wounds moments in your case, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Edie radios in to advise that we need to head to the main control console and from there we can overload the system which will cause the base to tear itself apart. Before we depart, we need to pick our accompanying team members and also who to leave behind to defend the position so that they can buy us more time to overload the base. And this is where Grunt would be f***ing useful. Because <laughs> yes, would. I don't know if you know this, Will, but the hidden mechanic behind this one is the people that you leave behind all have a points number assigned to them, depending on how strong they are. Right. And if the average points is, I believe, below two, uh, then people will die. Right, okay. okay. But if the average points is above two then you're good. And Grunt's point is the highest. Of He's got a four on his own. Right, okay, okay. So having Grunt alive for that bit is just so key. In terms of not losing everyone. Yeah, 
And it also impacts who you then take into the console room. And uh, as a result, I didn't take Grunt with me on this final battle, nor did I take Garrus with me because I wanted those two to hold the fort. Right. So I took um, Miranda and Tally with me. Oh, okay. Interestingly. Okay. One tech and one biotic. Um, and also because I knew what was coming and Tally has some very good uh, abilities for what was coming. How did you deal with this with your three people yeah, that you have left? My now dwindling squad. But <laughs> yeah. Ben Morinth is like, what the f*** did I join these guys? <laughs> yeah, I made a mistake. <laughs> uh, so for this mission, I went ahead and took Garrus and Zaid. Uh, again, because I was starting to worry about my squad members and which one I was going to be able to take into the next game. So without your similar affinity to Garrus, I went ahead and took him as kind of like, uh, we can afford to lose you. And I also took in Zaid as a kind of like, I hope you survive, buddy, because you're my only good man left kind of thing. <laughs> So that, that means you had, like, Morden, Tally, Miranda, and Jacob holding the fort. And Thane. And Thane, yes, and Thane. And Legion, I suppose. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it now, because I think I forgot to script it in a little bit later, but that did actually result in Morden also biting the bullet there. Oh, not Morden! <laughs> Cool guys are dying. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, no. Morden's one of my favourite characters. He is man. a cool he character. He sings a song and everything. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no, not anymore. His singing days are over now. He he sang his last song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Damn, yeah, yeah. So uh yes. Oh, poor Morden. Good night, sweet prince. You were the greatest man any of us will ever know. Yeah, we really did lose a lot of squad members in this suicide mission. Did only Morden die there? That's quite impressive. Yes, Gen I like, genuinely. think from the team that stayed behind, it was just Morden that died. It could have been worse could have who you left behind, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I mean, like, everyone could have died. It, I mean, it could always be worse. Yeah. <laughs> My shepherd could have just not made it through Mass Effect 2, I guess. It could always have been worse. That's what I have to keep telling myself. So Shepard follows the tubes lining the tall walls, and Edie advises that all of them feed into some kind of mixed organic, non-organic superstructure somewhere nearby. Edie also informs us that according to her readings, the superstructure appears to be a reaper. Shepard comes across a giant cyborg skull and torso missing any lower extremities that is suspended in a large chamber, and it turns out that the collectors have actually been building a hybrid human reaper using tens of thousands of human bodies to fuel its creation. According to Edie, this monstrosity would still need significantly more bodies to be completed. In order to destroy this twisted creation, we have to blow up with the glowing containers that occasionally expose themselves after defeating waves of enemies. As Shepard destroys the last container, the half-baked abomination falls to the depths below. With our enemy seemingly defeated, Shepard contacts Joker and tells him to prepare the engines, as this collector base is about to be blown sky high. We then receive a sudden and unexpected call from the elusive man, who explains that after reviewing the schematics Edie had sent him, he believes that a timed radiation pulse would kill the remaining collectors aboard the base, while preserving the advanced and therefore extremely valuable machinery and technology situated on the base. So at this point, James, we have another big choice to make. Do we take the technology and implant a radiation device to preserve it all? Or do we just blow it all to hell? What choice did you pick here? I picked what I thought and still think is the Paragon choice in this instance. Okay. And I blew that motherfucker up. 
I think that you're right there, James. I think that that was the right choice to blow it up. This is dangerous technology that could fall into the wrong hands. And you're giving it to Cerberus as well. Like, let's not forget, like, Cerberus have been very helpful in this game. But they did some shady s*** in the last game. Yeah, I mean, they have showed a complete lack of concern for our welfare, often leading us into traps intentionally during the course of this game, in fact. Exactly. So, yeah, I I saw I blew that s*** up. The elusive man was not happy, but, uh, like, at this point, even Miranda was on my side. She was like, no, we're f***ing blowing this up, mate. Yeah. And then I think she even hangs up on the elusive man oh right okay okay really cool yeah how about you how what did you go for well, uh, given the fact that I agreed with you that blowing it all to hell is the right choice for a paragon, I went ahead and did the opposite, which was to actually plant a radiation device, or at least plot to plant a radiation device, in order to hopefully preserve the collector technology and put it in the hands of Cerberus, hopefully granting us some sort of technological leap some point in the future once the research concluded. Enjoy that in Mass Effect 3, buddy. Depending on our last choice, Shepard accesses the main core and rigs it to either explode or send out the radiation blast, and the 10-minute timer begins begins. Just as we replace the core, we begin to hear loud mechanical whirring, and the supposedly defeated Reaper human lunges up from below, its eyes now glowing a menacing bright orange, and it begins to attack the squad with a mix of ranged and melee attacks. Through sheer will and determination, and a heavy sprinkle of bad arsery, Shepard is able to inflict enough damage to the glowing orange weak points to finally put an end to this nightmarish boss. Yeah, shoutouts to the Widow sniper rifle shooting it in the eye a bunch of times. Yeah, I use my sniper a bunch for this boss fight as well. Very useful. The team falls through the now collapsing platforms and the screen fades to black. The scene then opens up again to Shepard lifting a piece of scrap up off themselves and then stopping to help the two members of the crew who we took along to the final battle. Joker radios in and tells us all survivors from our squad are back on board the Normandy, and they were all sat waiting with bated breath to hear from their missing commander and squadmates. Shepard and his two squadmates continue their escape, whilst the voice of Harbinger echoes in the background, assuring us that we have changed nothing and that the Reapers will act as our salvation via destruction. Shepard manages to reach the evacuation point and Joker is ready at the shuttle doors to help Commander Shepard make the final leap to safety. As the ship doors close, the Normandy begins acceleration and blasts away from the explosion slash radiation blast, as it destroys the last few collectors. We see Harbinger frantically working at the helm of the base where it releases control of its current collector general form and leaves the scene remaining undefeated for now. You have failed. We will find another way. Releasing control. A blinding blast consumes the entirety of the base as the Normandy jets off to safety. So with our mission complete for now, it's time for one final debrief with the elusive man, where he thanks Shepard for his efforts, and actually was very angry with me for not keeping the collectorship, <laughs> um, and, but reassures us that with our help, Cerberus will indeed be ready to face the Reapers in the coming battle. And just as a side note, uh, thanks to the fact that I did eliminate the Reapers using the radiation, the elusive man explains that adapting the leftover collector technology could indeed be the biggest advancement for humankind since the discovery of the first Mass Effect relays. The game ends as Shepard and his team look onwards in hope. However, hope doesn't appear anywhere in sight as the camera slowly pulls away and shows what appears to be a massive fleet of Reaper ships descending upon the galaxy we inhabit. But that story, my good listeners, is for another time, when we begin our playthrough of Mass Effect 3. But with the story of Mass Effect 2 concluded for now, I think it's time that we moved on to our closing thoughts. 
James, do you have anything particular that stood out to you in this game? Any particular shout-outs that you'd like to give, obviously, other than your boy, Garrus? Uh, is there anything that you'd like to mention before we close off this section? Uh, shout-outs to the entire Mass Effect 2 game, because it is comfortably <laughs> my favourite of this trilogy. It, okay, it it's pretty broad, pretty broad. No, no, but I mean, that that's my ultimate closing thought, is having played the trilogy, because I have done, and even playing this one the second time through now, this one is still my favourite one by a street. I think it right, okay, improves okay. on one mechanically in every single way possible or just everything is better i would agree uh, there is it's not perfect the covering system still can be a bit clunky and like hopping over anything is a chore i'm really interested to discover whether i notice any different from mass effect 3 it'd be interesting to hear that as well but in terms of the shooting it just feels so good especially with the sniper rifle just killing things feels great in this game some of the later weapons that you are able to acquire as well they start to feel really powerful i can't remember whether it made the pod or not where you mentioned a long range smg but that was one of the weapons that I picked up towards the end of the game. And it is really powerful. I think you picked that up yeah. on Kasumi's, Kasumi's mission. mission. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very good stuff. So good. And I got that very early doors as well. Absolutely beams in terms of damage. And by that point, I'd also upgraded the SMG thing that increases its damage against shields. Yeah. So this thing was just dual purpose, ripping through everybody. Really good stuff. Yeah, the only negative of it is only got 20 rounds in its clip, but you can mitigate that because it's so good. You can good. just beam people. The amount of headshot damage exactly. that you get as a modifier really does make all the difference and if you combine that with taking the shields down with that and then snipering afterwards it's just ridiculous it really is and a very quick shout out to the grenade launcher as well which i uh kind of went back to about two-thirds of the way through this game and then let it carry me all the way to the end in terms <laughs> of my heavy armament had a really good time with it and it worked out really really well against some of the sort of larger mechanical enemies in the game as well i very seldom use the heavy weapons but when i did i actually just used the missile launcher oh do you know what i don't think i ever actually researched the missile launcher yeah. i kind of slept on that one i'll probably use it in my next playthrough you have to do heavy ammo capacity upgrades and then you unlock a new weapon like every one of them so there's one that's like Fine. a cryo one there's one that's like an electric pulse one there's all sorts of cool things um, and then just in terms of the way that the missions are set out in this one, I just preferred the sort of, they feel like they're slightly shorter missions, but they're almost like episodes. And I preferred that sort of style. And none of it actually felt like a grind to me. Some of Mass Effect 1's side quests feel like a grind, whereas in this one, I didn't really get it. And and the final thing I'll say um, about the game is I just, I love the cast of companions you get. It's a big cast of companions as well. Is it like, it's like nine or ten crew members, right? It's eleven. Eleven, wow, eleven yeah. with the DLC, yeah. So it's nine in the original, I think, and then with uh, Zaid and Kasumi in the DLC, it's eleven. Yeah, I mean, before my herd started to get thinned, shall we say, I mean, I had a yeah. massive lineup ahead of me right before that suicide mission exactly and uh the only shame is that you don't get legion for longer although you probably had legion for a fair bit because you were just doing missions and stuff yes although i, I must say i kind of neglected him for the most part other than for his loyalty mission no nah, but the optimal playthrough is that you only get him for one mission and then it's the suicide mission so yeah, yeah great cast of characters i have a massive soft spot for jack i have a massive soft spot for thane uh garris and tally from the first game wicked i love grunt as well he's so great and i also really liked the way that it twisted the series on its head by putting you with the terrorist group yeah that was a very cool shake up of things as well suddenly you're not kind of any more allied with the alliance or at least you're not so in tight with them as you were before which was a nice breath of fresh air because it kind of felt like in mass effect one you were kind of leaning towards a paragon alliance given the fact that you were actually working for them straight away until you're made a specter and then in this one once you're collected by the cerberus crew it feels like this one you're guided slightly more towards a renegade path and I don't think that the game necessarily wants you to pursue a Paragon in one and a Renegade in the other, but I like the contrast between the two games in that sense. 
sense as well, because you can tell that your bosses are coming from two sides of the same coin, in a sense. Cool stuff. And it'd be different from the different playstyles too. Obviously, you never engaged with the council once in this playthrough, which I find hilarious. I didn't. Do you know what? I completely snubbed the council. I stopped off in the Citadel to do a couple side missions, but I never made it there. I think the only thing I did was I very quickly spoke to Captain Anderson and reassured him that I had no intention of speaking to the council. Nice. But um, how about you, man? Was there anything that particularly stood out for you that hasn't been covered? Yeah, uh, so there were a couple things uh, that I'd like to mention. First, I'll start off with some of the negatives and we'll round it off with some of the positives. I really did miss my planet roaming missions from Mass Effect 1. Now, I know these things weren't very fleshed out and the planets were mostly empty, save from a few different components and various parts and upgrades that you might be able to find if you really take the time to scour these mostly barren landscapes. Which I did for every single planet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What I will say is that I found that a lot more more fun and entertaining to take my highly versatile Mars rover object across all of those dunes rather than doing the planet scanning probe thing. I will say that that planet scanning probe thing in order to mine resources is quite addictive in its own way and it's vaguely fun to do but only really fun for me in terms of the same way as a lockpicking puzzle or one of those tile swapping pipe puzzles in Bioshock. Whereas giving me the ability to drive around in the Mako vehicle was an absolute ton of fun, the physics worked really well, occasionally you'd have enemies to fight, and I actually enjoyed that experience. I know exactly what you're saying, I disagree personally, but that's because I've had so many times doing the Mako missions on the old Mass Effect where I had to do it twice per character to get level 60, so I'm just done with that, honestly. But I know exactly what you mean. Uh, By the end of the game, I was getting very bored with the probes. Fair enough, yeah. And I mean, it's not like they didn't have the opportunity in Mass Effect 3 to take those Mako missions and make them a lot more detailed, give you a lot more enemies to fight, put you in some more interesting environments. The sky's the limit, and they could have done that in Mass Effect 2. For whatever reason, they decided not to. Uh, you know, it is what it is. Did you play any of the DLC? Because you do get some missions akin to that. Do they actually put you in a vehicle at some point? It's not a Mako, but it's like a hovercraft type oh, thing. Oh, okay, okay. So so they, they did kind of go back and accounted for the fact that it wasn't in the game on release. Uh, Sort of. It's more of a, like, a love letter to it, rather than... Yeah. It's only like three yeah. missions or something, but... It's quite cool. That's fine. I mean, to be fair, you don't get many mainline story missions in the Mako either. I think there's only about two or three themselves. It's just the fact that you can scour the planets a lot more. Yeah, exactly. But the positive thing that I'd really like to say about this game is kind of what you touched on earlier. I think that the abilities in the game, combined with the fact that I changed my class to Adept so that I had a lot more focus on the biotic abilities, really made the gameplay fun for me in this one. It seems like they've tuned up the power of the biotic abilities in this game, making them a lot more useful in combat, but it also changes up the way that they function in the sense that you're no longer casting an invisible line from your hand to the enemy where they suddenly get attacked, but you cast orbs out of your hand that you can actually slightly adjust your aim in order to curve round cover and other objects. So for instance, if an enemy is hiding behind cover, you can still target them from behind the cover and tilt your aim upwards so that when you actually cast the spell, it will shoot well over the cover and then veer round at the last minute to hit an enemy. That is a really cool mechanic in the game. Yeah, you can do that with the uh, techno... I nearly said technomancer abilities. That You can do that with technical abilities as well. Because I had incinerate, same thing. Really cool stuff, yeah. Really, really good gameplay mechanic to add into the game it adds a lot of depth and kind of satisfaction in terms of the combat and also this game presents you with so many more arenas for combat as well i would say that the enemy count in this one feels massively increased from mass effect one yeah the game's a lot more cover shooty in general but the environment also enables you to set up traps and use different objects in the environment to defeat enemies it goes a bit beyond mass effect one which to my memory had a couple of exploding barrels and things like that in mass effect two there are specific rooms and environments that are 
opportune for you to do things like dislodge storage crates from the ceiling to land on enemies using either gunfire or biotic powers. Yeah, and the other thing that's really cool as well is in Mass Effect 2, there's a much bigger premium on flanking. In Mass Effect 1, you can kind of, you don't even really need to use cover, particularly on normal. I know you played on hard, so it's probably different, but when you play on normal, you can sort of just not actually go into cover and just run in and out and shoot. In Mass Effect 2, you need to be much better at covering, and if you're able to flank the enemy, you are going to win the fight. It's got a lot more tactics about it, I found. Probably better improved enemy AI that enables that sort of route of attack as well. Well, and also that's what you said there about there being more enemies. Uh, it means you have to do things like that. Otherwise, you'll probably yeah. get overwhelmed. I mean, when you're fighting the Geth, for example, you have the invisible hunters that are running up to shotgun you, whilst at the same time you've got rocket drones that are shooting rockets at you whilst you've got the normal infantry troops. And you have to play tactically, otherwise you will die. Fully agree with you, man. I think that's a really good point. That was a very noticeable step in the right direction, and I'm sure they'll keep that up in Mass Effect 3 as as well. But James, speaking of our upcoming playthrough of Mass Effect 3, I'm both sad to say, but also very excited to say that our playthrough of Mass Effect 3 won't be coming anytime soon. The reason for that being that James and I have decided to resurrect the gaming challenge until the end of 2023. Yes, it's about time that I defended my belt that I'd never got, Will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, James, fair points acknowledged. I have been lapsed on my smithing of the belt. Uh, I'm sorry that it's actually taken pretty much until the resurrection of the game's challenge for me to get you your actual physical reward. But I do hope that the knowledge that you decisively defeated me last year goes some way to making you feel better about the fact that I haven't got round to yet crafting your belt. But no, it is time for me to defend my crown. And actually, because I'm the champion, I think it's only fair that I decide who does the first challenge. Yeah, we can go for that. Yeah, absolutely. And because I went first last time and that gave me a lead. An early lead. Going into it. <laughs> I'm going to say the same thing again. Hit me up, baby. I'm oh, going to go first. You want the challenge? I'm oh going to go God. first. Okay, okay. Well, I hope you're prepared, James, because this week, my game's challenge to you... It's a Vampire Survivors challenge. Vampire Survivors, eh? This isn't a completion challenge. This is actually more of a puzzle, if you will. And I, I do hope Ooh. that you're able to unlock the secrets of what I'm about to challenge you right now. Your challenge this week, James, is to obtain a character level of over 600 whilst keeping the number of enemies defeated under 300. Okay, I have no idea what that means, Will. Right, James. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> everything will become much clearer as you play the game. Um, but what I'm sure that you're very quickly going to discover is that defeating under 300 enemies is not going to net you anywhere near the amount of experience you would typically need to achieve a player level of over 600. No, I would have thought so, yeah. So here is where the puzzle comes in. I give you one clue for this puzzle, James, just to make it a little bit easier because this is very broad. In order to achieve this janky and magical playthrough, the level it must be completed on is Ilmalese. This is a level that you don't actually unlock from the very start of the game, so it also involves just a very little bit of grinding in order to unlock this level. I will permit you to use the internet to figure out how to unlock the Ilmalese level. However, that is where your internet aid must stop as part of this challenge if you use... Do you accept these terms? Well, I have to, so yeah. Very blasé response. <laughs> Give it to me. I'll do it. I'll get it done. Okay, James, I wish you all the best of luck with this challenge. Uh, I feel like I don't need to profess my love for this game anymore, uh, yep, as I already right, did exactly. at the top of this episode. Very timely, the fact that we discussed that and my completion of the game, given that I'm now giving this to you as a games challenge. I wish you all the best of luck, buddy. 
I think this one might be a challenge for you. Not so much in terms of difficulty, but more about using your noggin to figure out how the hell I did this. And I'm very much looking forward next week to hearing how you got on. Yeah, and I look forward to telling you. Fingers crossed I can give myself a lead and uh, not relinquish it once again. Okay, you cheeky boy. I think it's time that we closed off this episode. Let's go ahead and crack on with the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthrough stream highlights as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. Yes, and as I mentioned earlier, if you'd like to check out some of my Mass Effect playthrough, get yourself on over to our YouTube channel and you'll be able to see it from start to finish. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pop Mode, or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And with a closing request to our listeners of the show thus far, please go ahead and support us by following the various social media channels we just listed now. It does the show a wealth of good in terms of growing our audience, as well as increasing the amount of content that we're able to provide to our listeners. Please do go ahead and do that. It really helps us out and we really appreciate it. Thanks very much, James. Couldn't have said it better myself. And with that said, we'd just like to do one final thank you to our listeners for making it this far, and we'll see you guys next week. Until then, goodbye. (laughs) 